Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. I mean, the one thing I know is that no no one ever changed their mind by being told how stupid they are, right. you know, by somebody else. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, a Facebook Live event. Uh, that will then be on YouTube and all the other interweb outlets, including uh, as a podcast, which you will be listening to on my podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer. Today, uh, my guest is Charles King, professor and author. Uh, he's written a New York Times bestseller called Gods of the Upper Air. Uh, we met a few months ago in New York on a rooftop where we were doing a, an event related to launching my new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And um, a couple of days ago, I interviewed uh, Maggie, who is married to Charles. And um, we had a wonderful talk about her uh, book and her life and her work. And now we're going to be talking to Charles. So this is kind of unusual to do husband and wife interviews this close together. But um, having said all that, Charles, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you very, very much. Now, I'm going to start being very facetious at the beginning here. But since Maggie sings and is wonderful and kind and gentle and lovely. Do you know anybody who knows you as a couple who likes you better than Maggie? <laughs> no, absolutely no one. I have to, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and I, I say that as a man married to a wonderful, gentle, lovely woman called Jeannie, who I've been with for the last 52 years. And I don't think there's anyone who knows us. And that includes, sadly, my children and grandchildren who likes me better than they like Jeannie. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, I think, um, Anybody who knows both of us would say that Maggie is the essence of sweetness. And I have yeah. other qualities that may be positive as well, but she, she has that yeah. in, um, in addition to a sparkling intelligence and everything else. Yeah. Sparkling everything. Yeah. I tried to get her to sort of draw the line at, you know, we were talking about the 1930s because of her book talking yeah. about this village in France that saved all these people, including many Jews and others and her family connection and the story. And we got into it. And then we sort of waxed historical a little bit and, uh, you know, talking about the World War II era. And, and the funny thing is, you know, it, it's tough to, to get Maggie to say anything hard about anybody, even very, very bad guys. It's like, hey, I would love for, to have her as the prosecutor if I ever get tried for anything. 
<laughs> well, you know, sort of see it your way. Say, yeah, there were circumstances here, and so yeah, he's a serial killer. But you got to understand, he had a rough childhood. Well, you know, there are, there are life lessons in this. I think for for both of us who have spent time in very difficult places, um, mm-hmm. whether it's in Eastern Europe or former Soviet Union, yeah, at an earlier part in our our careers, um, you see people in the midst of you know massive social change, and you begin to wonder how would I behave in those kind of environments? As she puts it in some of her own work, you know, this is not, not about, well, that disposition is not about letting somebody else off the hook. It's about putting yourself on the hook and asking, um, you know, are the times that we're living in now, for example, will they be seen by people in the future as moments which, you know, people should have made different choices or, or at, at this great moment of, social, political, religious, whatever change. And gee, yeah. how, how could we not see this? Well, and sometimes that's using an excuse. You know, there are some biographers of Jefferson, for instance, who tend to let him off the hook a little bit and say, yeah, well, you know, those times were different. But then I always sort of remember his correspondence with Abigail Adams and John Adams, where they were people of that period. And they did not uh, take 14-year-old slave concubines and get them pregnant and not free anybody they were against slavery and they were calling him out so you know when you make when when people make the not an excuse but when you try to set something in context um if there are other people in that same context who do have a more enlightened view it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't speak well for the people especially if they're in direct correspondence with them the way abigail adams was in correspondent with jefferson you know and there he's got his big monument sitting there in washington and, you know, where's one to Abigail Adams and, and, and John Adams and others who were more enlightened, you know? Well, I think that's what you want to do is, as if you're, if you're trying to write history. Um, you know, historians say things like, well, one of, the, one of the great tools of history writing is putting things in context. But that also means trying to identify, as you said, people in any historical era who are able to see beyond the bounds of their own experience. Yeah. And there are, um, there are great lessons in that for, you know, how I think we behave in the here and now mm. um, to question the things that seem absolutely true, to question the verities of your own day, to question your own sense of common, common sense. You know, Maggie's an anthropologist. I'm a political scientist and historian, but I think both of us, have learned that common sense is um, is often not a terribly good guide to the moment that you happen to be living in. In fact, you know, traveling around the world, living in different societies, living in different cultures, all of that is about trying to break the obviousness of the things that you bring into the world. You know, it's what makes you, I think, ideally a more open-minded, more cosmopolitan, if you want to use that word, um, individual. And it's a stuff that, you know, it's the kind of thing that in a moment of nationalism, in a moment of where people are worried about social change, where you have the eruption of people who previously didn't have power, who are now moving into positions of power and decision-making, mm-hmm. where everything seems to be shaking and, you know, social mores and traditions seem to be falling um, all around one. Um, the questioning your own sense of what mm-hmm. is obvious your own easy, quick think sense of what is true, I think is the only smart way to live. It also turns out, I think, to be a a more moral way of living too. 
Give, give me, I'm going to ask you two questions and you can give me a, a thumbnail on each. First of all, talk about what you do at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, where, by the way, my son Francis uh, matriculated about 30, 30 some years ago, yeah. uh, where he went to school and loved it. Um, his favorite professor was an elderly uh, Jesuit uh, professor who I think when you and I talked one time, I couldn't remember his name. You sort of probably remembered who he was. You said, oh, it must yeah, have been so-and-so. Yeah, probably Jim Shaw. Jim Shaw, I think, who was um, yes. a professor in the in the government department, and um, it was right. a wonderful colleague. Well, Fran- Francis yeah. and him got on very well. But give us a okay. So this this is let's go back to what you do at Georgetown and the sort of things you're teaching and interested in. But just for a minute, tell us about uh, Gods of the Upper Air, and and you know it's unusual that a book by an academic uh, becomes a bestseller. Why did it become a bestseller? And tell us about it. Well, I have no idea why it became a bestseller, and, and anything along those lines is all with the publisher, and the publicist, yeah. and, and the reviewers. Well, who published own. it? So it's published by Doubleday. Um, what's it about? And it is uh, Gods of the Upper Air is the story of kind of two things at once. The story of, in the 20th century, some of the great downsides of American life and culture and ways of seeing the world, from American racism to the rise of American nationalism, anti-immigrant movements, and so forth in this era. And at the same time, the story of a group of radical thinkers and scholars and writers who also happened to be anthropologists in New York City at at this time, Mm -hmm. who also created, I think, an American antidote to some of the ills of the era as they um, experienced it. This group of people, um, some of whom became very famous, Margaret Mead, for example, Zora Neale Hurston, were all gathered together by their academic mentor, who was the head of the anthropology department at Columbia, a guy named Franz Boas, the founder of American anthropology, who Mm -hmm. set out to sort of show us that our way of seeing the world, the stuff that in the right here, right now, we think Mm -hmm. is obvious and commonsensical and hierarchical and better and so on, from our food ways to our sense of morality. Yeah. It's all situated in history and different Mm -hmm. cultures, different societies do things differently at different times in different places. And I went around the world, Mead and American Samoa, Boaz and the, Mm -hmm. in the Canadian Arctic to try to show that human society is one unity planet wide expressed in lots of different uh, cultures. So it's the story of this, a kind of collective biography of this group of people. And the, can I ask you a question about that group you were talking about Columbia was, uh, was Jacques Barzan, the philosopher, anything to do with this? I know it's a different field, but he was at Columbia at the same time. had been there, you know, 40 plus years, his, his son or grandson, I always forget who it is, but Matthew Barzan is a friend of mine and he wound up as ambassador to the UK Appointed uh, by by uh, Obama, Matt mm. and I are friends, but I can't remember if this if Jacques was his grandfather or father. But I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think this it's is... his grandfather. I think yeah. Jacques Barzan was Matthew Barzan's grandfather. Well, this is a little so Boaz is active in right at the beginning of the 20th century and then died in 1942. Yeah. And so the story that I'm telling is really the 1920s. But he would have overlapped with Barzan, who was there for 40 plus yeah. years. Yeah, so I'm just yeah. curious whether there was a connection at all with that group. I don't I don't know, but um, there could well have been. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Columbia hosted just an amazing array of talent, right. 
in the, not just in the social science, but in the natural science and the history department and, and, and elsewhere. So it's an incredible- Was, Mead, was Mead's work later challenged um, on some pretty basic levels or if I got that wrong? No, you're right. I mean, there was a great controversy after she died in the 1970s, um, particularly in the 1980s and early 1990s. And sort of it's interesting that I think some, some a couple of the negative reviews of the book- Of um, your book? Of mine, right? Oh, yeah. Of God's Upper Air. Which is Gods of the Upper Air. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, there were a couple, a couple out of out of some really very wonderful positive ones. But um, I think they the reviewers hadn't quite checked in on Mead and Mead's studies, if you like, since um, some of those controversies of the 80s. There was, a, there was one scholar in particular back in that time who had spent mm-hmm. much of his life trying to take down Mead because he he thought she was a charlatan and not a serious scholar and so on. Yeah. But I think anyone who has read her notebooks, as I have at the, yeah. at the Library of Congress, you could not accuse her of having made things up or sort was, of- Wasn't some of the critique of her work, uh, which I'm not saying I share because I don't have enough knowledge to share it or not share it, but wasn't it that she brought so much too much of a rosy perspective to some of her studies in terms of the, the people she was yeah, studying? I don't, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think if you read uh, sort of her first great work, Coming of Age in Samoa, published in 1928, right. um, she's, she doesn't paint a rosy picture of American Samoa as she found it at, at the time at all. Right. Um, but you also have to understand what she was trying to do, both in that work and I think in a lot of her later work. She was trying to hold up a mirror to the society she knew best, to yeah, the United sure. States, you know, and especially later on as she was writing the 1950s and 1960s, as she became one of the sort of key figures in the early feminist movement, yeah. um, and helped to revolutionize child rearing and all, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, she was battling some pretty ingrained prejudices and was using the anthropological work she had done around the world as a lever against that. But I, I think that the, the critique of her, if I remember correctly, was also linked to the critique of the field in saying that, uh, you know, in trying to hold a mirror up to the iniquities of the West, to put mm-hmm. it that way, or U.S. culture. And of course, this goes for politics of the left as well during the 30s and 40s, you know, comparing us unfavorably to to what turned out to be Stalin's Soviet Union, for instance, that there's always been this propensity for thinking somehow that not only are we failing, true enough, but that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And if we could just be like these more primitive natural people who are less disciplinary and with their children or do this or that or the other thing, uh, find no problem with nudity or you know various versions of sexuality, everything would be fine. But the idea being that when you dig a little deeper into those cultures, they also had their problems. And it's not so much a comparison of the West to these ideal primitive societies, but that the human condition itself is fraud. Mm-hmm. And there is no place to point to to say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a little more like these guys? Is that have I totally got it wrong, or was that some well, of the no, I don't think, discussion? Yeah, I don't. I don't think Mead or her um, her colleagues would have found believed that they had found a kind of Shangri La or Brigadoon yeah. in some other some other yeah. part of the world. But I think they did believe that it was perfectly reasonable to look at other cultures, other societies, and ask how people create created meaningful lives right. in this context. And to insist, actually, that people did create meaningful lives in those yes. contexts. 
and that some societies which were labeled labeled primitive or backward yeah. at the time you know had places for people that might be labeled dis that we might now call disabled yes. you know in in a society that we're more familiar with or people that were at the time the 1950s 60s 30s mm-hmm. 40s labeled people of deviant sexuality, there were other societies and other contexts in which those people had not only had meaningful lives, but were socially placed, meaning there was a category for a person like that that allowed them to to flourish, or at least to have a a meaningful, productive life in that society. So um, rather than compare one culture with the other and find Mm -hmm. one wanting and the other perfect. What I think they were trying to do is simply say there are lots of different solutions to common human problems. You know? Right. You get married well. How do you raise a child? Um, what do you do with your parents when they get old? What does it mean to live a meaningful life? What's good to eat? You know, mm-hmm. like these are human universals. And those questions are the things that make humanity one. Not the answers, but the questions are the things yeah. that you know. Well, you've just written a, a new forward to the second edition of my book that'll by that time I hope be a bestseller in a year or two. Because <laughs> essentially that's that's what my new book, Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, is about is the common evolutionary thread that binds us all together and actually gives us a plan that works, which is put relationships and how you care for others ahead of, say, your career description. But right. Okay, now I got my plug in for my book. I can relax. Um, let me get back to your book here. And it's a uh, great cover. It's a great cover too. I like it behind. It you. is. It's a good cover. And by the way, here's the first copy I got from the printer for real. Really? Uh, yesterday, we got a box full that I'm taking to New York to a second rooftop event like the one you came to. Yep. But um, okay, so gods of the upper air, and then what you teach. At, at the School of Foreign Service, which, by the way, is a wonderful place, um, having visited when my son was there. I love, I, I love that. And it's yeah, the best part of Georgetown, in case anybody wonders what the best part of the school is. You know, you hear about the law school, but the School of Foreign Service is the whole deal. Well, I have to say, I've got great, college, great colleagues in Georgetown College and the McDonough School of Business and plenty of other places, too. It's a wonderful university. Yeah, it's great. Um, I've been there for 25, 25 years now. It's hard to believe. And I've taught everything from an intro political science class with about 250 students in the lecture hall um, to uh, first year seminars, first year, first semester seminars for students in the School of Foreign Service on, um, I used to teach a class called Guns that was about the gun debate. That was a sort of a a first year uh, seminar. Um, I teach a course called Ethnicity, Race, and Nation, which takes all those concepts and tries to compare them and smush them together and look at the American experience in the context of how other societies have dealt with categories like those and, and, and ones similar to them. Um, I teach a course on writing um, for our students in international affairs, where we look at all different types of um, nonfiction narrative mm-hmm. writing. Um, and and I, love, I love doing that. The students make me better. Um, they energize me. And, um, and I always feel like you know, the academic new year begins in late August or early September when all these students rush back to campus. And now, of course, even though I'm not on campus right at the moment, sure. my colleagues who are teaching this semester um, have really reported the, the incredible energy and optimism from having- Is your last stint there, was it virtual Zoomy stuff or were you in person? Yeah, so, I, so I've actually been on sabbatical because I, I stepped down from, a, from an administrative job um, uh, about eight, well- 
close to 18 months ago now, but I began, in fact, I, I began my my time away by finishing a semester online. Okay. Um, so you you went through that that experience. So I went through the early stages of that with my colleagues, yeah. Yeah, let me change gears here. And I'm going to throw two things out that are completely unrelated, but um, I'll give you uh, I'll give you warning. And then if I forget which one the second one was, you can get back to it. One, I want to know how you met Maggie and talk about that and that relationship within the kind of academic context and all that. I'm always interested in love stories and and the rest and personal history more than professional history, really. And then secondly, to double back to what we were talking about with, with Margaret Mead and the others, um, you know, I grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist household, but my father was somewhat of an intellectual and his whole shtick was what people in his field and your field would would call apologetics, which is presenting the case for what you believe, but using uh, facts and ideas and analysis from outside. For instance, a very basic idea of his being that... Um, evangelical Protestant Christianity of Northern Europe produced better social, political, and economic results than Southern European Roman Catholicism, which as an evangelical fundamentalist, born-again Christian, he saw as suspect. But that Southern Roman Catholic Catholicism produced better results in turn than, say, Islam, which was a very foreign wrong idea and that that in turn because it at least had an abrahamic covenant involved in it produced better results than say hinduism by the time you get there you're into absolute paganism no wonder their water is dirty no wonder nothing works he would look at history anthropology social policy as a mine from which to 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 i guess fish for facts that would support a basic idea that somehow you could prove Christianity was true and that the mm -hmm. biblical account was true based on the results in the culture around you. And of course, then there were problems like why did Martin Luther lead directly in a straight line to the Holocaust? Why did Bach do wonderful Christian music in Germany and then not, you know, and I blink long later in terms of history, the world of Bach and Dürer and and all these other people, Lucas Cranach and everything is all of a sudden, you know, being taken over by the Nazis and what your wife Maggie writes about in terms of what then impacts France. So there were problems, but um, he would look at things like feminism leading to abortion. He would look at these things. These were all apologetic arguments. And so I'm interested on a couple of things I'm going to throw out at you, having set the stage for this. Do you ever run into students that you're teaching who come at their studies with you from an evangelical white Christian background, similar to the one I came from, which produces a lot of intelligent people, but who would bring to the table a sort of Francis Schaeferian, to use my dad's name, apologetic method. Two, what do you think about the idea anyway? And three, does the left or progressive or secular people within the academic community actually do the same thing themselves, uh, mm -hmm. rather hypocritically, by flipping the table and looking for the evidence of failure within the idea systems that they oppose. Okay, there's a lot there, and I'm going to shut up now and let you riff on this for a long, long time. But I think that's it's a, a pretty good question. That's a lot on the table. That's um, that's an essay, um, a very complicated essay exam. Um, okay. With with discuss at the at the yeah. End of now it. discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so your first question, Maggie and I, Maggie yeah. Paxson and I met at a um, at a dinner party in in Washington, which is a very Washington-y sure. way to meet, I think. Um, and some friends of ours may have set us and up. How long ago was that? Well, we we just celebrated our thirteenth wedding anniversary. Okay, this month. So, um, but I have to say, um, you know, she makes me smarter every day, and our our breakfast, lunch, and dinner tables are are kind of seminars and the state of the world and social science yeah. and you name it. And and I couldn't have written a book that has anthropologists at its core without having one in the household. I was so going to ask about that because it's not actually sort of your field, but here you've written a best-selling book kind of about that. Yeah. About, about her, her field. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she was absolutely essential to that. You know, she's, she's the smartest person I know and I'm, I'm, feel very lucky to be married to her yeah um on the the bigger set of issues um you raise about you know um your own background and your father's work and so forth i think um in my own teaching i probably rarely run into kids who would um introduce themselves as evangelical sure um, you know, I, I teach at a Jesuit and Catholic. Well, what um, about conservative Roman Catholic? Just interject sure, there. There's got to be some people who like the Latin mass and all that who are still at Georgetown. Yeah, there's, there, there are, are kids like that and families um, like, like that around. And, and, you know, I like to think that um, if I can use an Episcopalian term about a Catholic university, that, you know, it's a broad church. Yeah. Um, as a broad church approach to religion, to faith, full stop. And it's a mm-hmm. place where everybody should feel welcome and free to, to express their, their point of view. But I think where, where the line is drawn for me is kind of right at the frontier of apologetics. So that if you begin with the idea that a thing must be true, mm-hmm. and then I will look for evidence to p- support the thing that I know must be true. Yeah, um, that is not the same thing to me as genuinely open intellectual inquiry. Right, um, it is certainly true that everybody, we all bring blinders to how we're analyzing any kind of problem. You know, we all have priors. We all have sets of beliefs we all have our own version of faith whatever that that you know that that is and but the the work that you have to do and it's hard work is to put as much of that on hold as you can mm-hmm. by ideally having as many conversations as you can with people who think differently mm-hmm. from you and you know i think you're right that there are there is a certain version of um, of American intellectual life that is um, that is less familiar with a whole broad range of you know array of arguments about, for example, about religion. Like, what does it right. what does it mean to take faith seriously? What does it mean to take religion seriously? To, to feel that deep tug mm-hmm. of you know one's own background and one's own faith tradition, if 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 if, if you have one. Speaking of which, um, let me ask you just right there. Do you are you a churchy person? Well, Do so you, I grew up. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I grew up as an evangelical Christian myself, and um, it is while um, while I've moved a lot on issues of faith over the course of my life. When I begin to think about big um, ultimate 
questions. That's the place I kind of go go back to. So do you um, go to church? No. So I don't so I don't I don't there's not a church that I regularly attend. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm not part of a, a part of a religious community, but I feel very profoundly that the faith I grew up with, um, especially in big moments of life, um, you know, big nodal points of life that any anthropologist would chart in any society, um, that, um, that, that tradition is a kind of language that is, is meaningful and important to me. I sometimes say I'm a Christian in the way that I speak English that um, I realize there are many languages in the world Mm -hmm. and I speak some other languages too and can do that pretty convincingly. But there is one that I'm really very comfortable in and it's one that I can best use to make sense of some very big questions. Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good way to put it. So I sometimes call it, you know, it's the language, it's my language of ultimate things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, what, what is disappointing to me about the, the moment we happen to be living in is that it is the faith tradition that I came from that has been hijacked by a very narrow version of American nationalism, right? So, yeah, that it, and so speak, speaking of which, yeah. a little while ago, I was interviewing uh, Dr. Balmer from um, uh, he used to teach at Columbia and now, now he's up at Dartmouth uh, and he teaches this history and he came from an evangelical background and is actually now an ordained Episcopal priest, very much speaking the same language you are. And his whole, his whole point while we were talking was to remind people yet again that yes, this white evangelical group has taken over the Republican Party, but from his point of view, what a pity that they've denied their own inheritance of, of you know, as spearheading the abolitionist movement um, work. And and he says, you know, there was a period in American history when the evangelicals were the left because they were the people bringing up child labor. They were the people who were on the abolition side. And sure, there was that dark side with the Southern Baptists that broke away to defend slavery. But nevertheless, evangelicals were not of the right. Okay, parentheses over. But the point is, is well, well taken. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, it strikes me that particularly, I come from the, the Pentecostal end of the evangelical movement. And what part of the country were you in? So I grew up in Arkansas. Okay, so you're in Arkansas in a Pentecostal church. Did yeah. you ever up, hear of grew up on a farm? Pardon me. I grew up on a farm. Yeah, so you're the you're the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but that version of of the evangelical tradition, you know, that's serious stuff. That's that's yeah. the that's the Sufism of Christianity. You know, right. 
it is this highly spiritual, um, um, highly speculative, um, the belief in miracles in the present moment, the belief in prophecy in the present moment, it is you know, it's a, it's a theological churn, right? Yes. Because you're not just relying on ancient texts, you're relying on human experience right in the present. Um, it's, it's actually a super exciting version of, of faith. And mm -hmm. then to see versions of that become regimented and cemented and to replace, mm -hmm. you know, a kind of narrow American national, to replace a, 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 an understanding of the gospel and the revolutionary nature of those ideas mm -hmm. with a version of American nationalism is, it's, it's very sad mm -hmm. to me. Um, Let me segue from that into something here. First of all, just remind people you are watching and or listening to the podcast In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. Today, I'm talking to Charles King. Charles King is a professor at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. He's also the author of a New York Times bestseller, Gods of the Upper Air. He is also married to Maggie, who I interviewed here a little while ago, and some of you will remember that. Um, let me segue from that and just say, uh, getting into the present predicament of the evangelical community, now being the spearhead of the white nationalist movement, now being the people who, as we record this, uh, account for the most of those anti-vaccine folks who are endangering others by having bought into a lot of very right-wing propagandistic misinformation, seeking to undermine the Biden uh, presidency uh, uh, with this sort of failure to deal with COVID, a self-fulfilling prophecy since they're not getting vaccinated. It's become a really dirty business. And Trump not only had the support of the white evangelical voters, 82, 83% of them, um, sadly, a lot of that had to do with anti-abortion stances, which my family had a lot to do with in the 70s and 80s, um, and have been credited, if you want to call it that, in, in, in bringing the evangelical cohort into the pro-life movement, when before it was more of a Catholic issue. And incidentally, a little, little uh, parenthetical comment here, our big battle was with other evangelical leaders at the time, like Dr. Billy Graham, who was pro-choice. Dr. Criswell, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who at that time was also pro-choice, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The editors of Christianity Today magazine, Billy Graham's magazine, pro-choice, Wheaton College, uh, with teachers there um, who, like Mark Knoll and Marsden and others, who would not join in with us. And so we were in on the start of that. So my question to you is looking forward now, that you came out of that background and your academic career analyzes such things as, as political policy and other stuff, has the evangelical movement disappeared in America and been replaced by a white nationalist movement that no longer remembers what it is? Or is this a group of people who can be called back to something that looks more like Christianity as we would have defined it, say in the 70s and 80s before this all took off? Well, where next? The, where next? What comes where next? next? Good question. I mean, the one thing I know is that no, no one ever changed their mind by being told how stupid they are, right. you know, by somebody else. And if I look at the arc of my own life, hmm. the thing that was so important in how I evolved, I guess, um, was some very careful teachers, you know, um, people who spent the time to gently 
care for me and my brain and my heart um, in quite extraordinary ways that I now, if you want to put a religious gloss on it, I see as a kind of act of grace, you know, on their part. And um, so that was a long journey of my own kind of long journey from teenage um, uh, from a teenager um, mm. within the church. Um, and, you know, youth groups can be kind of radical places when you're inside a religious organization, mm. um, all the way to being that, you know, the kind of person that I am, that I am now. Um, so at, at an individual level, I think it is absolutely the case that human beings can change their mind about things. And we've seen, you know, we've seen some remarkable evidence of that. I mean, look at Liz Cheney's um, view on, um, on marriage equality, you know, sure. and, and the transformation of her view on that, on, on just that issue is one example. Um, but I think there are also big institutional questions that have to do with the relationship between an ideology that is nationalistic and religious and race specific, you know, mm-hmm. in the United States and, and actual representative democracy. Yeah. Because we're, we're in a moment um, right now, I think in the history of the United States, that is not unlike that, that I saw in other countries in Eastern Europe where, you know, social change begins to rattle mm-hmm. an existing kind of order. And, you know, you saw that in the United States in, in during the civil rights movement where um, white Southerners, you know, were so deeply worried about the transformation of um, everything from what their school looked like to, to mm-hmm. the, the flags that they that they saluted to their position of power in, in that society. And it took it took the progressive, not only education of individuals over time, but a a set of institutional transformations to Mm -hmm. unbuild that, that of course are not even finished yet in, in, uh, in, in the South. So, um, you know, we're at this moment where I think one has to have institutional changes that allow greater access, that ensure the right to vote, that allow greater access to, um, to positions of power because, you know, in country after country, we see what can happen to democracy when the group that feels threatened by social change seeks to trade actual democracy for um, uh, maintaining themselves in power. And, and that's, that's kind of where we are, I think, in the, in the U.S. Do right you, now. Do you see from gerrymandering to voter suppression to all these crazy laws in Texas and all these other states I mean, obviously, it is a conscious move to try to preclude the event of minority, which is now becoming the majority, brown people, those from other non-Western backgrounds and so forth, from becoming the majority. You know, I lived in South Africa for a year during the end of the apartheid era, and the kind of thing that they achieved through apartheid, which was a 40 or 50 year period, uh, from 1947, I think it was when it became official until ni- the late 1980s when Mandela was released. You know, I, I think a lot of folks on the more progressive side have this de- illusion that somehow um, a shrinking minority of white people that tend towards authoritarianism and deliberately try to undermine the vote by either saying the election was stolen and or actually stealing elections themselves later by putting people in place, unlike some of the Republicans who stood up against Trump, replacing those folks on in various states who won't stand up. Um, You know, 
I'm, I have no answer for this. This is not a rhetorical question, but are we really going to lose our democracy or is this just hyperbole from the left? Because it looks to me like you could argue it either way, but it seems to me these Republicans really don't care about the democratic system anymore in a way that you would have assumed even 10 years ago could never happen in our lifetimes. Well, I think, I think it's not so much about the loss of a system because, you know, even on the left, I mean, perhaps especially on the left, it's very clear that the United States, there was not some um, nostalgic moment in the past when the United yeah. States was a perfect multiracial democracy right. that you know, the current Republican Party is attempting to, to unbuild. So to me, I think it's, it's perhaps a little more enlightening to talk about um, some clashing values in the United States right at the moment. On the one hand, you have a, a sizable portion of the electorate, and not exclusively on the left, yeah. that believes that a society um, is more just when it allows more voices to be heard, you know, yeah. in which um, whether that's access to the ballot box and simply making it as easy as possible for people to um, cast a ballot, mm -hmm. uh, to make their political voice heard. And another set of values that believes in things like order, that, you know, there uh, that that a society is best structured when it has a certain hierarchy to it. And surprise, surprise, the best hierarchy is one that just happens to place people like but like myself on top. Um, and, you know, whether whatever categories I happen to belong to. Um, places those individuals at the top of the heap. And so th that clash is not new, right? Mm -hmm. that, that debate battle um, has been a constant of, of, of American history. And so if we can simply awaken ourselves to the way in which those battles are still to be fought today, you know, mm -hmm. at the ballot box in Congress, that those are, um, and, and, and school boards, you know, these are constants of, of American history, mm -hmm. uh, not, not a moment that, that um, has, uh, has simply come in with Trump or with Trumpism. He's a, you know, he was a particularly egregious um, representative of one set of those, um, of those values, but mm -hmm. he's not at all. You know, it, it seems looking at what we've been talking about before in this conversation with my dad's ideas about apologetics, that, of course, one of his ideas that he put forward in his books, which were tremendously influential in the evangelical community in the um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and really helped helped, if you want to put it that way, politicize the movement was this idea that we had departed from our Judeo-Christian foundation. We need to come back to that. It has been taken from us and it bred this idea of victimization that even though it may appear that white you know, males are in the majority and they run everything, that actually underneath there's this insidious movement from the left and from, from sexual deviance and from all these other people to take away what belongs to us. And then, of course, there's a racial element to that as well that was less what my dad was about. But some of his cohort, like Jerry Falwell, who was a segregationist, and uh, started a great deal of his own activity in reaction to white schools being losing tax exempt status when they had been founded as a reaction to integration and so forth. Um, this idea of a Christian America, uh, which is fondly held onto by the right, 
and also used it as an excuse to take away freedoms from the present in the present tense in order to get back to our quote true foundation. That seems to me something that keeps being played out in this discussion, at least from the group of people that I come from. Yeah, well, it's not right. And, and that to me is no different from things that I've, I've seen in many other countries where I've, I've traveled and lived in. And we'll or, talk about some of those, which countries, well, so I, when- I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and former Yugoslavia and Romania and Ukraine in the countries of the Caucasus and Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. And in each of those societies, um, you know, there is some version of what it means to be a true and legitimate member of that yeah. society. And like, today in Hungary, who's doing the same thing? That's coming yeah, up. In Hungary is another example. Yeah. Yeah. So who does this place, who does this piece of real estate really belong to? Mm-hmm. Um, who made it great? Um, whose heroes are to be celebrated and whose are to be treated as, as enemies. Um, you know, so the American version of this, and this is part of why I wanted to kind of turn and, and write in Gods of the Upper Air about the United States. Yeah. The American version of this is not any different. You know, the American version just has certain terms and phrases that are meaningful in this context, a term mm-hmm. like, um, like race, for example, you know, which is deeply important in America, but it functions very similarly to how mm-hmm. ethnicity or nationalism function in, in other yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. So um, <laughs> getting back to those anthropologists I was writing about in the, in, in the book, um, they were trying to show us that the American experience is in, is in that way not unique. And we just happen to be living in a moment where that you know, white Christian America, evangelical um, uh, version of what it means to be a true American is just so front and center because you had a very talented politician who uh, whose survival and success depended on doing exactly that. Yeah, let me, let, uh, moving forward, let me just say um, that uh, you're watching or listening to um, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, and today we are talking uh, with Maggie Paxson's wonderful husband, <laughs> Charles <laughs> King. <laughs> That's how I'm going to identify. It's like the That's people great. I meet when I'm walking zip my dog in the morning. I know their their dogs' names. I forget theirs. You know, Maggie Paxson, you know, she sings and she plays a guitar and she sings in French. Okay, we're going to remember who she is, you know. <laughs> and, then, exactly. and then we come to Charles King, and I think he wrote a book about something to do with Maggie's field. Correct. <laughs> right. Exactly, okay. right. exactly right. I, I want to throw out something, um, and I tend to sound like I'm, you know, more certain of ideas than I am just because I put them robustly. I grew up as a preacher's son. So forgive that. And I'm not putting this out as the truth. I'm just here how I'm going to say it. Um, sometimes I get invited on television by people like Rachel Maddow and, and, and Joy Reid and others to explain some aspect of the evangelical whatever coming to the fore as if somehow it's a uniquely American problem. And what I try to tell people and often don't have the time in those short formats of being a talking head, but would like to lay out here for your reactions is this. My view is, is that what's happened in the US with Donald Trump, of course, is a strange thing because he's a con artist and he's a thief and he's a, all those things. He's also a skilled politician. But when you take his weirdness out of it, that just as you were saying, it's actually part of a worldwide phenomena, but I'd put it this way. 
and that is from the Wahhabist takeover of Saudi Arabia through the imams who manipulated the royal family to get what they wanted, which was a radical form of Islam that eventually produced Al-Qaeda, which was basically funded and generated out of the Saudis, even though that's not who we wound up blaming. The Iranian revolution, in which puts an ayatollah coming from Paris into Iran to throw the Shah out, who was, of course, corrupt and et cetera, et cetera, but nevertheless creating a theocracy there. Hindu nationalism in India coming to the forward Modi and everything that's happened, the radicalization of Pakistan now becoming an adjunct to the Taliban um, with a 110 or so nuclear weapons, which will be an issue at some point. The nationalistic fervor going back to Confucian Chinese philosophy in China uh, that is basically trying to give legitimacy to the second wave of the communist movement, but also again around nationalism. That that you know, when I was in the 20th century and Aldous Huxley and all these people were holding forth, the idea was we Christians are out of it. It's going to be a secular universe now. Sorry, folks. It turns out that all we've got is wars of religion. All we have is is Jewish occupiers of the West Bank claiming they've been sent there by God, being supported by American evangelical Zionists who don't care about Jews, but do care about the return of Christ. It's like we've gone to another planet. And not only is it all about religion and ethnic identity, but that the American phenomena, far from being unique, is just part of a worldwide slide toward a confrontation between all kinds of forms of religious and social and fundamentalism and any view of science or progress that might have been identified, say, mid 20th century as progressive. And we're in the middle of a worldwide confrontation between these things. It's a lot more similarity between Modi's nationalism and Hinduism of India and Donald Trump's white evangelical followers than there is between uh, anybody who had a kind of a scientific or rational or post-enlightenment view, say, 50 years ago. Now, Again, I put that in superlatives and too strongly, and it doesn't sound academic, so your hackles are probably up. But now be, give us a more modest view of that that makes sense. Okay. Well, I do think, you know, if we were having a, a, this conversation 20 or 30 years ago, yeah, um, you know, when Sam Huntington wrote that, that a political scientist from Harvard wrote that famous, infamous, in some ways, article called A Clash of Civilizations. In yeah, I remember years, which, you know, which you remember, which he, you know, which he argued that the coming dividing lines around the globe were going to be these civilizational, which to Huntington meant kind of religious clashes. Right. In fact, I think history has worked out in exactly the opposite way, that rather than a clash, there's a convergence mm -hmm. exactly along the lines that you, you mentioned. Um, you know, it in the 1970s or 80s, it would have been been called fundamentalist. You know, there was a great worry, especially after 79, after the Iranian Revolution, about the rise right. of different kinds of fundamentalisms. But I think we're also living in a moment now in which the fusion of political authoritarianism, um, ethnic nationalism, and worry about social change, the rapidity mm -hmm. of social change pushed by globalization, that all of those things come together uh, in, in a slightly different form with different shadings, depending on the cultural context. But, you know, you can't look at Trump or a Modi or an Orban in Hungary and not see the same, or if, go back a ways, a George Wallace, sure. and not see the same person. In fact, one of the things that I have my students do is to read um, Wallace's famous inaugural um, speech as governor, which when you start pulling it apart and, and just don't think about the, the historical yeah. context for a moment, but just look at the text. 
he is saying things that any ethnic nationalist in 2021 sure uh, could say and then you begin to do the genealogy and see well where does uh, a, you know christianist nationalism in the united states come from well you see it laid out exactly exactly there but you know the the caveat i will give is that um these religious movements are are um incredibly adaptive mm-hmm. that you know that that it is perfectly possible for a political authoritarian to claim the mantle of religious purity sure. while at the same time encouraging the development of science and creating vaccines and doing, you know, that all of those things come together. So what I sometimes call this is, you know, sort of anti-modern modernism because yeah. the folks are really comfortable with many of the benefits of modernization and globalization for that for that matter while yeah. at the same time using some of these ideologies to keep themselves in power yeah I mean, it's kind of what the chinese did when they decided it was quote to quote their their leader at that time it is glorious to be rich but also continue the communist system you know and so you've seen this play out what surprises me however about the era we're in now is that um None of the or little of this was foreseen. I, I mean, to take an example, for instance, you know, we always talk back in the 70s and 80s about religious liberty being trampled on and the people who wanted white schools and tax exemption for them use that and so forth and so on. But, you know, now you have Amy Coney Barrett and the Supreme Court basically telling evangelicals that their rights have been trampled. And so if you want to meet in a church without masks or vaccines, it's your religious right to do so to become a super spreader. We're going to guarantee that. And then on the other hand, we're going to look the other way in Texas when people of your ilk want to sue somebody who drives a woman to an abortion clinic. When you add all this up, there is a whiff of, of a push toward what I, have, I think has to be described as theocracy, because it's like there's now two, two levels entering into the highest reaches of American law and jurisprudence where suddenly the victimology the evangelicals have developed over the years is part of their own mantra that we are being put upon. So we have to take our kids out of school, homeschool them, because otherwise they'll get all this secular stuff. You know, when 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 Trump began to sell part of his platform as I'll, I'll get, I will defend your rights, I'll defend religious liberty, and people like Ralph Reed and all these other evangelical leaders played into it, you know, you now see out working out in the actual court appointments, people who seem to agree with this idea that religious liberty trumps other liberties. How do you see that playing out in the future? Have I got it all wrong? Well, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, we do have a constitution that creates a hierarchy of liberties and religious liberty is one of them. And the right to own guns is, you know, the right of an individual to own guns is another one of them. So some of this is baked into the American political system. I think I'm less worried about the idea of a national of a national theocracy, Mm -hmm. um, because I don't I don't think there's stomach for that kind of thing. I don't think there's belief in it you know I I, I, um, I take members of the Supreme Court at their at, at their word on, on, on that issue on th- that set of issues um, but I, I am increasingly concerned about what happens at local levels you know because from the civil rights movement forward the role of the federal government has been to try to equalize, access to power, to resources, to the ballot box across a country that for most of its history was an authoritarian patchwork, Mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, and, 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 you know, that's what, what um, the civil, civil rights laws were for. That was what the, um, the ability of the federal government to monitor particular states mm -hmm. and, um, and, and their voting rights um, access was, was all about. And it, we have progressively, you know, even going back before the Trump administration, we have unbuilt that safety net for broad American democracy. And what, what I do worry about is going back to this system in which federalism is a kind of excuse for a quasi-authoritarian systems at the at the state or local local level. Hmm. Yeah. I I think that, you know, when you look at where we are now, of course the big immediate question is does does the Biden agenda work? Does Trump win a, another term um, and come back in 2024? Does the House flip back to the, the Republicans? But the big story, it seems to me, a lot of commentators have pointed this out. This is not an original idea, but it, it also is on the local level, what's happening in the states. Because when you look at the divide between the red and the blue states on the state level, it, it, it really almost seems like a Cold War version of the civil war being replayed because these are entrenched positions and um, I don't see that going away. So I guess I'm gonna ask a, a kind of loaded question. My son who is a Marine fought in Afghanistan at the beginning of that war, um, came home safe and I do daily daycare for three of his, of his of, of, of their young children. Um, but as I look at this history of the US since Vietnam, you know, we have Vietnam, we have Iraq, we have uh, our confrontation with Iran that did not go well, although it wasn't a shooting war outright. And then Afghanistan, you know, America keeps losing wars, it keeps losing face. Um, and, then, and then on the home front, we seem to be re-arguing re re things that we took for granted in terms of access to voting and this kind of stuff. I, you know, this sounds like a pretentiously big question, but where do you think the US is headed? I mean, are you of the are you of the opinion that this is it in terms of we are now in an inevitable slide in terms of being a world power away from that? We've lost credibility. Is this salvageable? Is the future bright? Is it dark? I mean, how do you actually see how do yeah. you see? No, but your students must ask you this. Yeah. It's a very well, sophomore question, and I'm asking it. What no, do you think is happening? It's, it's not. It's the kind of thing I would ask on an essay exam to try to see what my, my students thought. Um, I think there's absolute, absolutely no question that the United States is in decline, if we yeah. mean um, relative decline. You know, this is not the late Cold War, um, the adversary that had a fundamentally different political system yeah. and economic system from the United States is no longer there. It hasn't, you know, it hasn't just collapsed so that the United States could feel that somehow the, that its economic, political, cultural, social system was so evidently superior to everyone uh, else's on the planet. You know, as you have the rise, the emergence because of market systems and globalization of other societies and, and other political systems around the world, the relative power of the United States is not you know, will 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 get smaller and and smaller. I think the yeah. great question for the moment, it seems to me, is whether you know the United States can find ways of saying goodbye gracefully, goodbye to that version of America in the world yeah. gracefully. You know, and this is kind of the the question for great powers. Um, 
from you know for, for a very long time that if you can find ways of preserving the best part of whatever you think your values are and then imparting those to other other societies other states other civilizations around the world that will have been a time on the historical stage that was that was worth it um I'm not feeling particularly good about our ability to do that right at the moment, simply because we seem to have divided ourselves into two great camps that that don't listen very well across that that divide um, mm -hmm. and um, and seem to be in a process of, you know, ramping, ramping up a kind of confrontation um, um, a, a, a across that that barrier. Yeah, I mean, almost a war of internal annihilation, not literally, thank God yet, but uh, very much so. Uh, no room for for anything. Um, let me remind people you've been watching and listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, and I'm participating in a porch course with my friend Gareth Higgins, who founded the Wild Goose Festival that I've participated in for many years, at, beginning in mid-January, and it's based on my new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, which will be in bookstores uh, or online, available November 2nd. Please pre-order if you can. And by the way, nobody will be turned away from the porch course for lack of funds. There is a fee to pay, but all you have to do is say you can't pay it and you'll, you'll be on the course anyway. Um, Please visit the Porch Course at porchcourses.com. And I would appreciate it if you would uh, not only order my book, but like this podcast and this conversation and spread the word because these things are all word of mouth. And uh, it all depends on the support of folks who are watching and listening for both the book and for what we've been discussing. And uh, Charles, um, just to finish up here, you're going to be on sabbatical for how long before you go back to school to teach? So I'll be teaching it in the spring. So in, in January, I'm back at Georgetown teaching. Yeah, that's that's really good. And and Maggie was telling me that next stop after Scotland is Venice. <laughs> yeah, well, this has been a fabulous um, sabbatical. We finally made it over here and we're going to go to Venice uh, for a month and then a little bit of tooling around after that and then back. Um, that's really and lovely. And I, I wish you such a lovely trip. Uh, uh, and um, thank you for indulging my podcast in the middle of your sabbatical and vacation when you're trying to rest yourself in your brain. And then, you know, <laughs> here you are talking to me and I'm dragging you back, kicking and screaming. Happy, into to do it. Happy to do it. Congratulations on the book again, Frank. Thank you. And listen, please thank Maggie again for a good interview. And, and thank you to you for a really, really, really wonderful one. Let's do one again. And how about sometime when you're done your sabbatical and back in in the saddle that we do a, a podcast with you and Maggie and me and talk about the relationship of both of your projects together. Sure. That'd be terrific. We'd be nice to have together. you back on. And I want to get her to play some music or sing for us to do something to do, do the whole thing. So yeah, this was really good discussion. Thank you so much. And really enlightening. Thank you for all your wisdom and guidance through this. Thank you. Yep. Talk to you later. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com. <laughs>